0: Welcome to the show, we hope you have a blast Thanks for making time for the Dealer Talk Podcast Another business leader, here's a penny for your thoughts This ain't a regular conversation, baby, this that, dealer talk. Yeah. this that
1: Dealer Talk What up? Welcome to a very special session, the Dealer Talk Podcast Today, I have none other than the writers and producers for the movie, Suckers Gentlemen, what's going on? How are you, sir? Hey, Herb Hello, you. Herb. Hey man, I'm super excited to have you guys on the show. We're actually taking a little bit of a break. Um, we're not doing any sessions uh, until September, but when we had this opportunity to connect and, and, you know, talk about the film and some pretty exciting news that's coming here uh, next month. Um, I couldn't pass on the opportunity to sit with you. Um, with you
2: I'm guys. glad you knew what we were.
1: Yeah, man. Um, I'm super excited to have this conversation. So uh, tell us a little bit about just what's going on, man. Let's just, let's just start off with the, with the big news.
2: Well, we made a film called Suckers back in the era, classic era of car sales in the early 90s. Uh, it really represented car sales in the 80s and 90s. The film is called Suckers. It was released on HBO in 2001 and then went to DVD and then it has not been available for a long time it was only available on dvd we did a restoration and we're making the film available again now in hd
1: that's awesome man i'm super super excited. and that's coming out um next month right
2: end of august yeah you can get it on blu-ray you can pre-order it now and herb i'll send you the links and you'll be able to stream it on vimeo on demand and then after that on amazon
1: that's awesome. So go to the description of this video. If you're, if you're watching this on my YouTube channel, if you're listening to this, go to the show notes and we're, we're going to link everything up there so you guys can, um, can get, can get a copy. So, uh, let's talk about the film itself. So Joe, I, I understand that yes. that's, uh, is it loosely based on your experience in the car business or is it more, um, you know, that was your experience in the car business?
0: but and not so loosely it's it's uh, pretty tight <laughs> no, it's it I, it's definitely based on my life i my daughter hadn't been born yet and i'm a stand up comedian by trade and i was traveling around the world and i didn't want to miss the birth of my first child my only child it turned out to be and and uh, i was reading this book that i got from my wife about what a woman's body goes through as the baby grows and it intrigued me so much and i was home buying a car and the salesman that i was dealing with uh, didn't seem too bright to me and i thought well if they hired this guy maybe i can get a job doing this and i went down and it the the scene in the movie of how bobby gets hired is exactly how it happened the 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 manager of the dealership asked me what I do. I said, I'm a comedian. He said, yeah, make me laugh. I'll give you a job. And I made him laugh and he gave me a job. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh, that's funny. So so <laughs> <laughs> how, how long were you in the car business? Just for, for some context. Off
0: and on, uh, maybe about three years. Because, you know, I, I was selling cars. Until my daughter was born, and then a little bit after that, and then I went back to doing stand up. And uh, but while I was selling cars, Roger would always—I would tell Roger these stories of what was going on at the car dealership, and and he was like, "You got to write it down. You got to write it down." So I wrote everything down. I had actually written a script for a one-man show because I went from a showroom in Atlantic City to uh, a Jeep showroom in Southern California. Like, I mean, I was on stage in Atlantic City, and two days later, I was in a car dealership in in California. And uh, Roger took everything out and saw the makings of a great script. And we started writing, and then I had gone back to do more. It was like partly to do more research, but partly because it looked like we were actually going to get the movie made, so I wanted to stay in Los Angeles. And I, I couldn't make enough money just in Los Angeles to, to make a living. So I went back and sold cars. And at the same time I was selling the cars, we were writing the script. And uh, it, it was pretty exciting.
2: I remember, Joe, when he would tell me these stories, I couldn't believe it. I said, really? This is what you would do to the customers? And I can't believe this, these psychological Genius level psychological techniques that the sales manager was teaching these customers I mean, it's, pr- it's sort of common now. I guess it's common knowledge to salespeople a lot of this stuff But I was completely unaware and surprised and amazed and, and really thought this there's something here So Joe wrote it down. He wrote a one-man show and then we took that and adapted it into the feature film that you see which we gave we did a little I mean yes it's it's based entirely on Joe's experience but we did exaggerate some things obviously and ramped up some of the loan shark s- story plot lines although we did find a dealership in uh, I think it where was it New Hampshire Joe where they were running drugs No
0: Asbury Park New Jersey
2: they were running drugs I, through I, the yeah hidden in the new yeah. cars that were coming in so we looked for yeah. real world examples of everything that we were writing about and condensed it all into one month so you get to see the four Saturday meetings.
0: One of the things that Roger said to me while we were shooting was, I don't ever want a car salesman to be watching this film and say, that would never happen. And there, there's really nothing in the movie that you would look at and go, that would never happen. Every, got, single, every single thing was based on some part of truth.
2: Do you remember, Joe, after we finished a cut, an early cut of the film, we invited the salesman that Joe had worked with in the South Bay, to To a screening, like a test screening, so we could gauge their reaction and make sure that it did feel accurate. And afterwards, we asked them, "So, what do you think? Does is Reggie? Does it feel accurate? Is this too extreme?" And they said, "I, I think." What, what remember, Joe? What did they say exactly? Well, I re-
0: the reason why we had the screening was because the producers of the film kept insisting, "This is too over the top. It's too over the top." I said, "Okay," and we invited all the guys I worked with selling cars. And at the end of the screening, like, unprompted, they came up and went, wow, you really toned it down a lot, man. (laughs) (laughs) Like, there's a scene in the movie where a salesman, a guy refuses to go inside the dealership to talk, and the guy brings out his desk, his calculator, his lamp, like, nothing The thing that cracks me up about that scene is he's pressing buttons on a plug-in calculator. There's nothing plugged in, and he's and he's selling the car to the guy out in the parking lot. Like he had them, he had the um, uh, what do they call the guy? The porters move every bit of furniture out of his office and put it outside, and he sold the car to guy. And that is one hundred percent, absolutely happened in in the dealership I was working at
1: wow man yeah i want i want to break that down a little bit because i you know i, I would hate for people to, to or especially people in the automotive industry to to watch this and and you know kind of not get the point of um you know there's an opportunity for improvement and i think the testament to that is that your your film um is used a lot in training sessions at the car dealership. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? It's, it's kind mandatory we watching. It's we like a
2: didn't sp- think of that. That was such a surprise after an after effect. We never thought that that would be the outcome.
1: Yeah, so I, w- I definitely want to touch on that because there's definitely a, a room There's room here, excuse me, for, you know, for, for a leave behind for the audience, right? Um, but uh, before we get into that part, um, I wanted to ask you guys about your relationship. How did you guys connect... Um, you know what I mean? Like where how did that happen? Cuz you mentioned earlier that you were at the dealership and you were telling these stories to Roger and then Roger was like, "Hey, you know, you need to you need to write this. We need to do something with this." Um, how did you guys meet? Like,
2: you know, tell me about that. Joe's a stand-up comedian. Grew up in Boston, moved out to Los Angeles and was performing at the Comedy and Magic Club. And I am a I was always wanted to make films. Grew up in Minneapolis, moved out to California to get a job in the film business go to film school, and got a job working for a company that managed comedians. They were called Rollins, Joffe, Mora, and Bresner at the time. And they managed, the big five were David Letterman, Woody Allen, Martin Short, Billy Crystal, and Robin Williams. My boss would go to the comedy clubs all the time to look for new talent. And that became my job after a while as sort of a talent scout, and as his assistant to go to the comedy clubs, hang out, and meet comics. And one night I saw Joe performing there. And I thought he was great because he would tell true stories about his own life, and he it, it, it felt genuine and funny. And I always remembered; I've never forgotten. I think one of the first jokes I heard, Joe. What is your joke about? Uh, get me the encyclopedia.
0: Oh, my father! When people, it was a thing about how people buy all these books on how to raise kids, and that my father. Use books to, with me too. He would he, he, he would hit me with the encyclopedia. do
2: <laughs> so <I was> like, <laughs> like, get, go me, get the me s. s.
0: <laughs> that's a big one. <laughs> look s for sleep. Pow. <laughs> now you don't even have to go to bed. <laughs> wow, that's an old joke. You know what <laughs> That's that's a very old joke.
2: I never forgot but it. But I remember the first joke look, I saw.
0: Right on. And and the script the script for suckers wasn't the first script Roger and I wrote together. And I remember we were both living in Los Angeles, and we would rewrite a a version of a script. And how long did it take to send a script back then? It was like (laughs) hours to to email a script to someone. Yeah. Right on. Now it's a, a matter of seconds.
1: So so for you, Roger, um, because uh, Joe mentioned earlier that you were pushing him like, hey, you got to write this down, right? So wh- what was it about it that you wanted to capture that, that kind of you saw as, as, hey, this is something that we could turn into a movie?
2: I've always been a big fan of the movie, Glenn, Gary, Glenn Ross, as well as, and I think I use this as a template for us, Joe, correct me if I'm wrong, but a film called Clerks, Kevin Smith's first film. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I thought, this is two good movies. What if we combined these into a movie about the car dealership? And what it was, I don't know, you can tell, you guys can tell me, Herb, tell me if, if our portrayal of Reggie in the film as the general sales manager, that's based on a guy who was Iranian, who it, it was a real person at this South Bay dealership. And the what you see in the film is pretty accurate toward what his... Sales meetings were like. I mean, I just thought this is fantastic. This guy is a real life version of Alec Baldwin. I mean, even more so than Glenn Gary Glenn Ross. And we we need to uh, let's profile this because I've all my films, all my documentaries and my feature films. I've noticed, in hindsight, I'm really fascinated by human psychology and anthropology and human nature. What is it that drives people? How are people manipulated? How, how, what is it that makes people tick? Why do they do what they do? My very first documentary is called Trekkies. It's about Star Trek fans, and I was fascinated by this subculture of Star Trek fandom. I thought they were hilarious and interesting and, and fascinating. That led me to making a documentary about aliens called Six Days in Roswell i went to roswell new mexico and profiled ufo fanatics and why are they so enthusiastic about abductions and getting abducted that led me toward making uh, my next film which was suckers we shot suckers joe and i were writing suckers as i was making finishing trekkies and i was fascinated by the psychology of sales salespeople These tricks or psychological methods have been around since the first rug bazaars in 3000 BC in Persia, similar versions of sales techniques to haggling, getting the best deal. It's, it's just, it's innate. And I I thought this is amazing. And I can't believe there are people like Reggie out there, but apparently there are. And obviously things have changed a great deal now with the invention of the internet and, and salespeople have had to adapt and they've, they've adapted and evolved and new techniques have, have emerged. But at a basic level, these same psychological tactics are still there that Reggie employs to one degree or another. And, and that's what really grabbed me is this really charismatic persona of a salesperson who's, who's leading the troops yeah,
1: you know, I, um, I like that because, you know, one of my biggest things uh, or my biggest drivers and what I do with a podcast and the content and all these initiatives is is I hate the stigma that we have in the car business, right? Especially nowadays, because when you think about it, the, the, the salespeople have to be very qualified to succeed because the technology is better you have we're in in what's considered an efficient marketplace right buyers and sellers have access to the same information dealers are spending 14 plus hours doing research before they ever walk into a dealership and so i think to your point like that has definitely evolved and also i mean if you if you really look at things you can always find examples of everything i don't know if that makes sense but you could find examples of a poorly run car dealership with poor management and all those things, but you can also find examples of amazing dealerships that are progressive, that are doing things different. Um, And, you know, it's kind of interesting for me to see what the film has become in the industry, which is also one of the reasons why I wanted to do this because it's kind of, you know, iconic for the, for the, for lack of a better word in the industry in the sense that it's become the staple for training, Um, you know, I hear references to the movie all the time and I consult with dealerships all over the country. And so it's been, you know, um, it's been kind of like this point of reference in the industry. Did you guys foresee this kind of happening? Did you, did you see this as, um, you know, (laughs) was that even a thought that this might be something that could be used to improve the industry that, that, that it was going to be used to, to, um, you know, create better experiences, better salespeople to kind of point out the things that um, are not effective in the industry.
2: I didn't. I had no idea where we were headed. I just thought we're going to try to tell a great story. But let me give you, here's a concrete example of a psychological phenomena that salespeople should be aware of and are aware aware of in the movie Suckers. I just made a film, another document. my latest documentary is called The Truth About Marriage. And one of the questions I asked people is, who is the boss in most relationships, the man or the woman? And almost unanimously, people say, well, the woman. Uh-huh. And I thought, that's fascinating. Why does everyone agree that the woman is the boss? I thought it was a man's world. And it turns out that women make the decisions, all the or at least they have a veto right over all the big decisions in most relationships. And the reasons for that we could get into. But once you understand... Who's the actual veto boss in a relationship? If a couple comes in to buy a car, who do you talk to? You talk to the one who's making the decision. And there's a scene where Bobby gets his first customers to come in. He says that classic, Follow me. Mm. And he turns around and walks into the dealership. Don't turn around, because if you stop and turn around and a dog is following you, what does it do? It stops. Don't turn around and look. Just walk. So he walks all the way in, sits in, and they follow him in. Te- technique number one. As they sit down, when, when Bobby brings in his sales manager, uh, Eddie, Eddie, who's very experienced, once he realizes who's making the decisions, it's the wife, he stops talking to the husband. He looks at the wife from now on when he asks the question, tell me, why do you want this car? Why don't you want this car? And then he looks at her and waits for her to answer. If you're aware of how people work and how they think, and it's natural, there's nothing wrong with that. It's actually, it's it's just educating yourself. You're going to be much more surgical in your success you'll get there faster you're going to make your customers happier and you're just going to grease the wheels better by understanding human psychology and we portrayed examples of that in the movie you can see that is if you look at every scene we can show you now in hindsight the psychology that underlied what reggie was teaching the salespeople joe do you agree with that Yeah, you
0: know, a lot of it is is also uh, cultural stuff. Like that's what intrigued me the most. I mean, I was working with guys literally from every corner of the world, and and every religion, and every um, uh, you know social, financial, any, all different things. I worked with guys that that used to be very wealthy, and and something happened, and I worked with guys that were dirt dirt poor. And, um, I worked with one kid that was was so poor. And when he started at the dealership, he was just cleaning the dealership. He was a little kid, like 17, 18 years old. And he, he moved up the ladder. And when he became a salesman now this, and, and it was in Southern California, he was from Mexico. He spoke Spanish. So just the fact that if a Spanish-speaking customer came in, and you know, say, when we had, they called them ups. That's how you got your customer. Say that this guy who who couldn't speak English very well, he got a, he was from Russia, and he got a customer who only spoke broken English but fluent Spanish. He would go and get Javier. His name was Javier. I love this kid and. And Javier would come and sell them the car, and they would split the deal. So the opportunity for anyone of any education and and could earn—they were all earning the same amount of money, and it was a good amount of money that that you could earn selling cars. And whatever uh, whatever skill that you had—not that like I don't want to call it a language your 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 first language a skill, but. Any, everyone had something that helped them to sell a car, and I it, I used to start arguments, like purposely start arguments between all these people of all these different cultures, and and just to see what would happen, and then I'd go home and write it all down. But the 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 human nature, like I I studied some some literature about if you do this 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 and this. of human beings will react in this way. And I was like, no way, but I'll do exactly what this says and see what happens. And I remember the first time I did one of these techniques and the customer reacted exactly the way that this book said they would react. And I actually jumped up and and screamed because I couldn't believe they, they did exactly what it said they would do. So, and in terms of like the old, like the old way of of selling cars and and how salesmen have a bad reputation, I'm telling you, man, it's the same exact thing. It's human nature. And there were people that if they came in and said, What's your best deal? And I literally gave them the best deal that the dealership could offer. If that was the first thing I did, they would not believe me. They would not accept that I was giving them the best deal. And after, I'm sure there's statistics on how many dealerships people will go to before they actually purchase the car, but they'll go to the third dealership before they realize that I was telling them the truth. And they won't come back to me just because I told them the truth. They're exhausted by then. They've been working, finding the dealership, shopping for the cars, all that stuff, that they'll just buy it wherever they are when they realize that I really was telling them the truth. But if you make them work for it, psychologically, they feel like they've accomplished something and they've gotten you down to where they accept the price that you're giving them. And it could be a price tremendously higher than the one that I was willing to give them in the first five minutes of the deal. So th- there's the psychology of selling cars is so intriguing and people think it's this simple thing and people want to beat up the car salesman. And I've had so many people say, Oh man, I took so-and-so with me and he beat the hell out of this guy. And, and I got, I got the greatest deal. And, uh, yeah, and I'm like, did they let you leave with the car? Yes. Well, then they made money. You know, they made a fair <laughs> amount of money. You know, then they, they, you didn't get ripped off. And people always ask me, can you tell me if I got a good deal? I'm like, Do you love the car? Yes. Can you afford the payments? Yes. Then you got a good deal. Why? Why do I have to prove to you that you could have got it for less, or you you paid maybe a little too much, or or you got a phenomenal deal? You know, it it's nobody nobody is totally one hundred percent sure that everything they did was the right thing with it, and they're terrified. I just had a friend of mine going to buy a car. And he, and he called me up and he goes, I, I said, listen, this is the second most expensive thing you're ever going to buy in your life, aside from your house. You're going to spend all this money. Have fun. Have fun doing this. And he's like, no way, man. I hate this. I hate this so much. I'm so afraid. And I'm like, you have all the control. You have the money. They can't do anything without your money. So as long as you know that, you don't have to fight. You don't have to yell. You don't have to scream. You don't have to get scared. Just know what you're going to do and do it yeah. and have fun doing it. And, and people just refused to enjoy the purchase <laughs> of a, an automobile. I have a blast when I buy a car.
1: Yeah, you know, you said a couple of things there, and I want inter- to kind of interject with a couple of thoughts. So number one, um, I love that you talked about the potential and the, the – I don't know if potential is the right word, the opportunity, right? Because I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm living proof of that, right? So I'm, I'm, I came to this country from Venezuela. Um, you know, I was washing dishes, uh, you know, like that, that was kind of the, the path that I was going in. And then I got yeah. into the automotive industry and it completely changed my life, you know? And so right. um, I'm forever grateful to this industry. Um, That's fantastic, man. Yeah. So to, to- That's awesome. I love that. Yeah, to kind of highlight those things, um, you know, I think that that's, that that's important. Uh because a car business is a great place to 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 be uh, you know, like you said, from all walks of life, you know what I mean? It doesn't matter anybody could do it as long as you have that hunger and determination and you're willing to to pay your dues because it's not, you know, it's not all, you know, uh, shun- what is it? Sunshine and rainbows. Yeah. You know, it is it is it is, you know, hard, but if you if you can can muster it and you can, you know, uh, put yourself through it, then, then you could be very successful. The other thing that you talked about was the, you know, I like to look at sales as as there's got to be common interest, right? Like, I, you know, innately human beings have a selfish interest, right? So I have an interest for myself to, you know, take care of myself and the customer has their interest, um, you know whether in this in this case buying a car to get the best deal possible to get the car that they like and all those things. And so if we can put those things together now we have a common interest, right? I want to sell them something so that I can make a commission, they want to buy something because they need it. If I can we can put those th- if we can create a bridge between those two things, we got a deal. And so I love that you that you kind of uh, s- spoke to that like everybody has a skill, right? You have to play to your uh, your advantages if it's you know maybe you speak another language so now you appeal to that demographic right and is that you're you're you know just uh charming or whatever the case may be maybe your are te- your level of knowledge about the product is superb and that's right. your you know what i mean that's the thing that separates you from the rest and i do agree with you that in, in, there's a lot of potential within the car dealership to have different uh, different people from different walks of life with th- these different skills that if they um, if they recognize that that skill for what it is and that talent, then obviously they're they're going to be able to leverage that. And then the last thing, which is my biggest uh, frustration in the car business, especially now, because maybe in those days I do agree that um, the margins were a lot better and healthier. Nowadays, I mean, in some cases, you're making on a twenty plus thousand dollar purchase, you're making three hundred bucks. You know what yeah. I mean? obviously there's back money and all that and all those things, but the, but the margins are so reduced. And the reason for that is exactly what you talked about, man. Like why is it that we in this industry have to justify what we paid for the, for the, it doesn't matter how much do you, when you buy a house, do you, t- do you tell your mortgage broker, like, Hey man, you know, what's the cost on that? Why can't you yeah, the yeah. on the house? You know what I mean? But in the car business, it's kind of like an expectation. And I, I, I don't understand that. It just, um, It drives me insane. And well, so- my
0: boss had a great line for that. When people would say things like that, like, uh, you know, I, I'm not going to pay this. I'm not going to pay that. I'm not paying sticker. And he would point to the number and say, what part of this car do you think isn't worth this much money? <laughs> you know, and and it's not based on anything. You know, it's not based on like they don't have any figures of how much it costs to make the car and then decide all the things that someone has to go through to get the car to you, you know, they don't consider anything. They just see a number and they think, I have to get as far below that number as I can. And they really have absolutely no idea what that number represents. Like they can't look at the number and calculate what their payment is going to be, you know, and then people go, I paid you know, I got this card. The sticker price was $25,000 and my payments are 270 bucks a month. Did I get a good deal? It's like, how can I figure that out? I don't know what you what you got for your trade. I don't know how much you put down. I don't know what your interest rate was. And they really think that telling me their payment, I can calculate whether they got
1: ripped <laughs> off or not. And, and it's, it's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. Roger, what about you, man? T- I'm. I'm sure you've bought a car, right? What's oh, your? Oh yeah, Joe what?
2: came with me. <laughs> I brought Joe along when I bought my uh, new Volvo convertible.
1: <laughs> so, how was that experience like? Was it uh, kind of like what you were expecting, as uh, you know, because of the experience with the film, or um, was it different?
2: Oh, I, I knew going in what it was all about, and having Joe there as my advocate was amazing. Everyone should have Joe. <laughs> 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 uh, we had so much fun going to a couple of dealerships and talking to people. We had a great time because we know we knew exactly what was going on. There's nothing to be afraid of. I think it's a, Joe used the right word, fear. People have fear. They have fear of the unknown, fear of being screwed. I'm going to get screwed. And I love how Reggie, my favorite scene maybe in the movie is when Reggie makes this argument, which is a counterpoint. Bobby, the new salesman, makes an argument that we need to respect the customers more. Stop mocking them. Because, because some customers are making fun. Sorry, some salesmen are making fun of some customers that came in. He wanted a car that was made on a Wednesday. What an idiot. And Bobby, the salesman, is getting overwhelmed because he felt, he felt like he's pushed some co- deals too far and, and hurt customers, and he's feeling that. Reggie comes in and makes an equally persuasive counterpoint that you should be proud of what you do. Why should you feel bad that you're good at your job? Because if a customer comes in and gets it for less, that's money out of your pocket. He's taking money away from you. So and, and if you make a good deal for yourself, you're taking money out of his pocket. What's the difference? It's the same thing. So eventually you, you get to a point where you have a deal. Just, and so feel good about who you are and that you're good at what you do. And be good at it. And why should any salesperson feel bad about being good at what they do? It's a dance. It's a psychological dance that human beings go through. For some reason, it's a little different for cars than it is for houses. Yeah, it'd be bizarre to say, "Well, wait, you paid fifty percent less for this house three years ago. Why should I pay?" You know, it's right. market value. It was what people are willing to pay. Supply and demand. It kind of look at the blue book. It's, but you know what it, you know what it, it, it exists,
1: um, Roger. You bring up an uh, an excellent point. Excellent point, point. and it's this and. And I've seen this over and over again, so I can say it with confidence, but what I see in salespeople, it just, it, it, it drives me insane because they don't, they don't have that pride of, 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 of the role. It's like, you know, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a car salesman. You know what I mean? Or they don't even want to say it. It's kind of like, ah, uh, you know what I mean? Instead of being like, dude, no, you know, I'm a car salesman and I make, I make, you know, good money. Like I've, I've been in situations where the car, the car salesperson is making more than a doctor or than a lawyer. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right. So it's like, dude, like, you know, you got to take ownership of that role. And as soon as you start to look at that differently and, and, you know, with pride and, and have pride in what you do, then it changes because the reality is to your point, Roger, some of the best deals are ones where you're making five, six, seven thousand $7,000. You know what I mean? The customer leaves, oh, whoa. The customer leaves super happy, right? They're, they're just ecstatic. They had a great experience. The dealership made money um, and everybody's happy. You know what I mean? And so I think that the way that we look at the role sometimes, um, not sometimes, I think it has a lot to do with how we behave. You know what I mean? In the role. And so, if we looked at that differently, I think that our, the behavior would be different. Yeah, you know Joe taught I,
2: me that. So, I'll let you, Joe, you can explain uh, this: how it's not about screwing people or selling to people; it's about becoming their advocate. That's how you want them to feel. You want a customer to feel like you're you're when the deal is all over that you're a new acquaintance, you're a new friend now. You're not someone who went to that that caused them damage you helped them find the right car at a decent price everybody wins right joe
0: yeah yeah and you know one of the 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 biggest things that i saw with car salesmen is is the same thing with customers they're not having fun they're not having fun like one of the things i would do and it drives me nuts when i go to buy a car and i tell everybody when they go to buy a car drive the car the way you would drive it if you owned it don't go around the block and come back if you're on the highway like my wife commutes from home and and she has an hour and a half commute on the highway in horrible rush hour traffic so if my wife's gonna go and and test drive a car she's not gonna drive around the block and she's gonna drive the car on the highway and she wants to see how it feels on the highway but a lot of salespeople, they have this very short uh, route for their for their test drive because they they don't see the value in the test drive. And to me, that is the most important part of the deal: is the test drive and knowing what to do. And and there's there's stuff in the extras on the on the uh, you'll see on the new release. It's it's there. It was on the first DVD. And just about how to sell the car and how to buy a car. And what I used to do is I had a test drive that I used to take people on. I found these deserted roads, and I would tell a guy, get the car up to 60 miles an hour, let go of the steering wheel, and slam on the brakes. And any brand new car, when you do that, is going to come to a nice stop, and it's going to go straight because everything's in alignment, and it's brand new. And people would get so scared to do that. And I was like, well, do you want to learn what the car does now? Or do you want to learn in the middle of an emergency? And, and th- like my daughter, when I taught my daughter how to drive, I live in New Hampshire now. I took her out in a snow-filled parking lot and just let her do donuts for like hours <laughs> so she could learn how the car handles in the snow and when you lose control, how to get it back and people think I'm insane that I let my daughter – I was driving – it wasn't a brand-new one, but it was a, a Mercedes-Benz SUV. And they're like, "What? you you let her do that in that car? I'm like, yeah, because it might save her life. So I had test drives that I would say, look, coming up, there's a curve, and it says not to go over 35. Don't take the turn less than 60. And they're looking at me like I'm nuts. I'm like, you want to know what the car feels like? Now, when I w- at that time, I was selling Jeep Grand Cherokees and every car that that was the competition would probably do pretty well, but no one was going to let them do that in a test drive. So I gave them the impression that the car I was selling was the only car that could do that because it was the only car they did that with. So, And I had such a blast doing that. I remember one time I got shocked. I was selling a car to a, a cop who had had high speed uh, you know chase training and I, and the fact that i let him do whatever he want wanted to do with that car yeah. and it it was a dodge neon you remember neons uh, i couldn't i was in the passenger side going oh my god i can't believe this car can do this and he <laughs> bought two of them he bought <laughs> two he bought one for himself and one for his wife because i let him do that with the car
2: let me add, we uh, you know what Reggie would say in the film Suckers. The reason that when Bobby gets his first customer, his sales manager, Eddie, comes out and tells him, go drive them, go drive that couple. When you f- make someone take a test drive, Reggie would say it puts the customers in the ether. That's why you want to make a deal today, because you want to sell the car while they're in the ether. Driving the car, the way Joe's describing, gets them excited. Full, endorphins are flying and you're going to make a much better deal when someone's that happy and and just they're hopped up on endorphins. They're in the ether. You want to close the deal while they're in the ether and the test drive puts them in the ether. If you sell a car without the test drive, you're not going to get them up to that excitement level.
0: You know what? I'll tell you a real quick thing that that I used to love to do where I sold cars, a place in LA called Hawthorne Boulevard. And it went up into palace Verdes and it was a really steep hill to get up into palos verdes and there was a traffic light right before it and most of the people that lived up there they they were pretty well off and they wanted a car that had the power to get up this hill so they go will it make it up the hill and i said come on and i would make them time it so they would be the first one at a red light and at the time uh the the demo cd for the sound system had the theme song to top gun on it and I would make them stop at the red light, and I would cue it up right to the beginning of that <laughs> song. And we'd be at the red light, and I'd say, do you trust me? Yes. Okay. When the light turns green, put your foot to the floor, and you'll see how much, because it had an eight-cylinder engine, and you'll see how much power this car has. And as soon as the light turned green, I would hit play, and they would punch it, and the sound system would be so loud and go ba uh-huh. and people would just take this deep breath like gasping deep deep breath, and the car was sold right there, man
1: yeah, and man that's that's so fun cool. any anybody new to the car business listening to this take note. <laughs> um, that's why you
2: don't want a lot of customer walk if they come back tomorrow they're gonna the ether will have worn off
1: (laughs) absolutely hey guys dude thank you so much for doing this i really really appreciate it this has been awesome Uh, i'm excited to, to share this with the audience um guys don't forget in the description if you're watching this on my youtube channel there's a link to Um, um, the the re-release of the movie, where you can get it. All that information is going to be there. If you're listening to this on the audio portion, go to the show notes. It's going to be there. Um, I have one last question that I ask everybody that comes on the show. Um, So we'll talk about that in a second. But before, I wanted to ask you guys a personal question about the film. Uh, It's the same question, just kind of your different perspectives on it. The question is... um, what was your main intention with this film did you want to was it a jab at the car business at the industry in the sense of you know um what that experience is was like maybe in those days because it definitely has evolved or was it more of hey here's an opportunity to showcase um some of the downsides of of the industry maybe in a in a in a comical way but hopefully uh um you know, create some room for improvement or bring some light to, to, uh, to some of the issues. Right. So that, so that it can, it can improve.
2: I'll tell you my, my, as a filmmaker, there's a bit of, of jabbing going on. And there's also a bit of worship hero worship anyone who can psychologically control the situation the way that a great salesperson can do as Reggie, the GSM that we were, we were profiling in the film and suckers could do. I'm, amazed at that amount of control it's all about control for reggie controlling the situation controlling the box when you've got the customer in the box controlling customers toward signing and it's this elaborate psychological dance that he has mastered and i find that fascinating and so part of making the film was to expose the reality of what goes on at a car dealership because it's interesting. And also, uh, I think what evolved was it's sort of what, what's become, I think, is like when gangsters watch The Godfather. I don't think when they made The Godfather, they thought they're making the film for gangsters, but gangsters love the movie. <laughs> and it turned out car salespeople like our movie suckers, I found, because when I walk onto a dealership and I say who I am, they want me to sign autographs, and, and I'm, it, I find that amazing and fun, and it's, it's great. I can't believe it, and I love it. I love the fact that our film has been adopted by the sales industry. I did not see that coming at all, and, and, you know, and Joe, you lived it.
0: Yes, yes. You know, just, Roger just reminded me of something, that, and I will answer your question, but one time I get a message on Facebook Messenger from a friend of mine, and there's a, 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 a shot like a, he took a photograph of the film being shown to him and he wrote, is this your movie? And I said, yes. And he started asking me all these questions like, why did Bobby do this? And why didn't he do that? <laughs> and and I'm like, what is going on? He goes, I'm in a sales training class and they're asking me they're, there's a test. I said, you're selling cars. And he goes, no candles. I go, they're using suckers to teach you how to sell candles. And he was in Ukraine. <laughs> and I go, I'm like, my God. But um, but to answer the movie for me, and and I know Roger will agree with this, it's just a peek behind a curtain. You know, it's a peek into the way that world really works, and it's intriguing to people. And one of the biggest things that makes me laugh is. Everybody who goes to buy a car thinks that it's a unique experience and if they handled it well or poorly, they think, you know, it's just unique to them. And then when they watch the film, they literally scream at me. That's exactly what the guy said to me. That's exactly what happened to me. And they don't, they don't realize that it's just this process that if, and and for the car salesman, if you do it properly, you will make a lot of money. And and if you don't do it properly, like I have guys that really angered um, salespeople. And one of my favorite techniques was when you get into a rut and every salesman gets into a rut once in a while, you just can't sell a car for the life of you. And my boss used to say, it's your first day. And you pretend that you don't know anything anything about the car because you're getting too cute you've accumulated all this knowledge you start to feel like you're a little better than the customer and it becomes this competition and when you go back to your first day you're just excited about the car you just want to do a good job you want to impress people and you want to really help a customer and when you pretend that you don't know anything the customer it's this endearing thing where they feel like they're helping you so that's, I really wanted to, and and I'm so intrigued by different cultures. Uh, like when you say you grew up in Venezuela and I work with guys who grew up in Israel and guys who grew up in Iran and guys who grew up in Mexico and different parts of the United States and Russia. And we would all work together to sell a car and 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 everybody would put their differences aside if they thought this other person could help them. And you really realize how much we have in common and how we're all pretty much the same.
2: Mm-hmm. Let me tell you, I remember that candle salesman, the question that he asked <laughs> Joe was, he said, why didn't Bobby take the money at the end of the movie? And that was a question on their test. Yeah, And that relates to the theme of the movie is how much is too much? Bobby's struggling with that from the beginning to the end. And by the end of the movie, he settles on a point with Eddie, who is his uh, remaining boss, that make the deals you can live with. You don't have to destroy people. Because if you rip their face off and they're unhappy, they may not come back to you. But if they leave happy, you want them to come back and buy all their cars from you and to send their friends to you. That's a much better deal than making a giant killing, you know, holding gigantic gross on one car right now you want all the cars and that's the theme of the movie and maybe that's part of why the film resonates yeah i mean you should always be
1: working for the future sale, in my opinion yeah oh yeah yeah absolutely um guys as we were having that i know i said last question but as we were having that a question came to my mind that i wanted to ask you um it may be a little bit direct but you know uh when am I gonna have? It? Go for it, man. Um, do you think that it paints the automotive industry in a negative light? Is that was that? An, uh, you know, do you think that there's there's it could be because there's already a stigma. Do you think that the
2: that the film can kind of um, play into that? Well, do, do, do you think that The Godfather makes gangsters look bad? I mean, I think it it makes them uh, look. What's the word? It uh, idolizes them, mm-hmm. in a sense. I mean, they're gangsters. They're horrible people, right? But but they're amazing. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you know what? It's funny. What was the guy's name, the casting director that was right in the oh, offices? Mark, Mark Tillman. All right. This guy, he, he was huge. They actually made a movie about him, and I used to go and sit with him, and he cast Fast Times at Ridgemont High. One time I went in, he had Spicoli's sneaker on a shelf. It was really cool. But he was at the cast and crew screening of The Godfather sitting next to Al Pacino. And when the movie was over, Al Pacino said, this is terrible. We're sunk. No one's going to like this movie. And Tillman said, what are you talking about? Why? And he said, they're all bad guys. There's no good guys in this movie. And and no one ever thinks of that when they watch The Godfather. They think the Corleones are the good people. You know, they're the good guys. So it's I think so
1: what we true, did And I've never wow man it's Yeah, yeah. How I've never I've never thought about that but you're absolutely correct.
0: Oh the cops are bad people the gangsters uh, are bad people like a, you know a guy a, a guy who's like a, a a baker goes to them to help solve their problems you know like can you kill my son-in-law whatever it was I don't remember exactly. But but I think the movie it's it's I, I understand why people think it paints car salespeople in a negative light but it's a snapshot of of what the car industry was at a certain point in history and it also shows you that uh i mean there's bad people you know reggie's not bad just because he's a car salesman you know he's a drug dealer that's the part that makes him really bad and and even if you go beyond that he's just so greedy like a lot of people thought that the genre shift in the movie was was a bad thing, but to us, it was a natural progression for a guy who's that greedy and is willing to take money from anyone by any means would eventually get into something illegal that he that would be the only thing that he could earn that much money that quickly.
2: It's never so, enough right yeah Reggie. right, that's the right, problem. never. Yeah, that's why he he, that's why Reggie goes down because his motto is it's never enough and that's not a good motto
0: and the car sales is just a setting to 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 paint a picture of greed and what it can do to you and that's why I don't I, I didn't ruin the end of the movie but Roger already let it out so at the end he doesn't take the money because he's finally free Everyone in – and we, especially Roger, because he's such a great director, and, and man, he's so well-prepared, but we made it so that if you study the end of that movie, everyone in that room is accounted for. There's no reason to believe that Bobby was ever there. Uh, The money all works out. The drugs all – like, the money is exactly what the drugs are. There's no reason to believe that there's any – Anything further than what went on there, there's no reason for them to look for Bobby, and he's free, he's caught up, he's even. So now he can, it's like a clean slate, he gets to live his life according to what he's learned.
2: If he doesn't take the money, that's not his money, right? Right, guys, wow, this
1: has been awesome, man. Thank you, thank you so much. There is one question that I ask everybody that comes on the show. and, uh, I'm going to ask that question, but my favorite scene of the movie, just to share with everybody is when they're haggling the price and they're going back and forth and the salesman gets up, it goes back in the paper and it's more than I told you that I wanted and all this stuff. And by the end of the scene, the guy's like, man, I can't even call you a customer. You're a friend. now." <laughs> <laughs> that's me. I'm the salesman in that scene. Yeah, that dude, that was,
2: that's, that's brilliant. I love that. So. The customer was a comedian named Joe, or was uh, J- Jake, Jake. Johansson and Joe is, is playing the salesman. And I remember we wrote the scene and Joe couldn't remember his lines. You remember that? So what did you do, Joe? Oh, man. <laughs> I I was like, I I was so frustrated. I was like, I can't believe I wrote this and I can't
0: remember what it is. And I said, the hell with this. And I put the script in a drawer and I said, you know what? I'm just going to sell him the car. And I swear to God, Herb, I just did what I would have done if I was actually selling a car. And it was almost word for word what was in the script.
1: It's <laughs> a great scene. Everything about that scene, is just a, it gets me every time. I don't anyway. think you got your question out. You said you have one yeah. question. So the last question or the, quest- the question that I ask everybody that comes on the show is, where do you see the automotive industry headed in the next five years and why?
2: Well, people are always going to need cars. They're going to need to get from here to there. But uh, obviously, technology is changing with driverless cars and gps and you name it i mean tesla ha- has taken over the uh, uh, the electric vehicle industry because they treat it like a startup they don't treat it like the old style of the car makers and so the car makers are now suddenly having to play catch up with tesla because they don't think that way you've got to so i guess the lesson is you've got to think like what's the new thing you can't get stuck in the old trying to sell people horse and buggies when there's now automobiles and vice versa, whatever the thing is, you got to stay current and the car industry mobility is always going to be necessary, especially for Americans, but you've got to stay current. I love that.
1: Joe, what about you?
2: I,
0: I honestly think certain things are going to change. Like, like people, are, people are inventing ways to buy a car without a salesperson and and i don't think people are comfortable with that some people are because of their personality and whatever quirks that they have that they prefer not to interact with another human being but for the most part we all need to like you know i learned before i sold cars i sold other things the, the easiest way to sell something is to put it in someone's hand and if you can if you can just just be helpful. You know, there, there's a a car dealership around here where their slogan is, we don't sell cars. We help people buy them. And, and I think, I don't think anyone's going to buy a car based on the statistics of the car, unless they already own an earlier version of that car. So you're still going to have to go somewhere to test drive this car. And, and, and if you're planning on buying it online and not doing it, you're still going to have to go test drive it. And a really, and this has gotten such a negative connotation, and I mean it in the best way, a really good salesman won't let you leave. Like you won't want, let me rephrase that. You won't want to leave. Love that. Yes. And go home and buy it online. So Because they, they got to come and test drive the car. They're not, I really refuse to believe that, 98% of the people who are going to buy a car in uh what do they call them um uh the, the machine where you get a candy bar
1: uh carvana
0: yeah where you just go and and open a door and you own the car you know the car comes out like a vending machine yeah and i really believe that those people had to go test drive that car somewhere before they did that and if you really know what you're doing you you can put someone at ease enough to think that they're not going to get ripped off and you're going to provide them a service. And this is the most important thing to me in car sales. And you were talking about pride. The most pride that the salesman should have is in the service that he's providing Yes. to buy that car. You are providing a very important service and it is, you, you have to make it abundantly clear to your customer that you're not going to abandon them once they buy the car and you're not going to rush them into anything, but there's ways to help them to make that decision in a quicker manner. And your service is worth a certain dollar amount. And, and it's really hard for a salesperson to, to get a customer to believe that. But I believe that when I go buy something, when I'm at a store looking at something that I know I can get for $20 less on Amazon, I'll buy it from that person and I look at it as I am paying for the service that this person provided me and vice versa. If I go in with all the intention in the world to buying it from a brick and mortar store and I and I get bad service, then that that encourages me to go and buy it on Amazon.
2: So let me add an addendum to that, too, because what is a car? It's not just a motor with four wheels and a seat and a steering wheel. A car, especially now, is a work of art, and a salesperson is helping a customer to understand the layers of meaning in this work of art, to yeah. fully understand it better than they could by themselves and appreciate it more. You're really an art dealer in that respect.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love that. Wow.
0: Yeah, yeah. Awesome. And I used to, I used to like try and look at things. And explain to a customer, like, why did they put that button there, you know? What was the old version of this, and how did they improve that? And, and, and to get the customer to believe that not only I consider their feelings and their needs, so does the, the person who owns this dealership, and so does the person who manufactured this car, and all the way up to the person who designed the car. Because to that guy, that is a work of art. Um, I, who was I talking to? Uh, A buddy of mine actually just talked to him before we got on this call and he had a particular boat and, and he was sitting at a bar and he just met this stranger and it was the guy who designed this old boat that this guy had. And he loved that my friend enjoyed the boat so much because so much of his soul went into designing that boat. And that's how car designers feel. You know, it's not like just something that magically appears out of nothing. There's a lot that goes into it. And if you help your customer to realize that, they'll appreciate you, everyone you work for, all the way up the line.
2: And understand why it's worth what it's worth, what you're selling it
1: for. Yeah. Yeah. Right on, man. Thank you again, guys, so much for doing this. We'll, uh, we'll have to do the 50th year anniversary. So <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to put that in advance. Yeah, <laughs> uh, I really appreciate it. Again, one more time, go to the uh, description if you're watching this on my YouTube channel for links on how to get your hands on the um, the new edition coming out. Uh, is it end of August?
2: End of August, yeah. If you want to reach me, it's rogernigard.com, and there are links there. And Joe, you, is it yanetti.net? yanetti.com yanetti.com
1: Yes, right on. So go to the links, uh, connect with these folks, uh, check out the video. Um, And then if you're listening to this on the audio version, go to the show notes for the same information. Guys, again, thank you. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciated the conversation. Um, I love the film myself. I, I I like what it represents and what it's doing for the industry now. Um and um yeah man I'm I'm excited for this to to go out hopefully
2: and- hopefully we'll see you out there selling a car to me or Joe at some point because you know <laughs> even the makers of suckers are gonna need another car soon right on
1: man. so yeah thanks for having us Herb <laughs> yeah this was you fun you bet all right guys that's all the time we have thank you so much for tuning in um and as usual we'll talk later is it nope. not a problem
0: in your store anyway. this show might help you fix it uh, though we did not set the bar nope we're just trying to lift it with new automotive knowledge uh-huh. the talented and...
3: from product pitches meetings to cost negotiations your vendors have you swamped you have cars to sell but most of your time goes in managing your vendor relationships Wouldn't it help to have someone navigate the way ahead? Enter Dealer Talk Vendor Management Solutions, a filter between you and your vendor so you only have to deal with what's most important. We inspect your digital data to get optimum results for your money. Here's what we do. Give you an accurate idea of what's working and what's not for every digital service. Get vendors to submit monthly highlights, lowlights, and recommendations. Sift through their data to give you those metrics that matter. Evaluate all package, content, or cost changes and product pitches. Do monthly marketing budget analysis to ensure better ROIs. Finally, we give you concise reports and monthly videos with actionable insights. Now you can focus on what really matters, selling cars. Contact us today and your first 30 days are free. Let's build your business together.